Good morning, good day, or good evening, and welcome back to the Lorecast. Uh, I'm your less-than-humble host, Sax, down here in the wood shop. It is, if anybody cares about these things, the 30th of April in the year 2020, and my home state of Maine is one day away from entering... Uh, I'm sorry. One day away from exiting the first phase of our illustrious quarantine. Apparently, the quarantine hasn't actually ended because if I leave the state, I'll have to self-quarantine for 14 days following my return to Maine. So, here I am, killing time before I can go back to work with this podcast. Hopefully everyone listening is dealing with their individual circumstances saliently, calmly, and sanely. I know I am. Anyway, if you've listened to my other episodes, I have covered three creation stories of my own general rewriting and retelling. These have been the Greek, the Nordic, and Finnish creation accounts. And um, I'm hoping that for those of you who have listened to those, you'll have seen a strong correlation between the three. And if not, I hope to make the case over the course of the indeterminate number of minutes that it takes me to do my reading and thinking that I'll have made the case for a syncretic paganism present in the inspirational periods before the recorded history of the myths that we have discussed. So, with that said, I'm going to finish up this last bit of my woodworking project and get into the reading. So bear with me for about 30 seconds here before I finish this brush stroke. All right, here we go. So here we are in review. I've heretofore put out three, with Ovid as a bonus, podcast episodes dealing with creationism in the European anthology of mythopoeic cycles. Uh, As a quick digression, if you are not familiar with the term mythopoeic, it is a suffusion of the words mythology and poetry and refers to a uh, status of cultural language which is largely absent from modernity, being the fusion of myth into poetry. Anyway, I have retold the stories from the peoples I study most, being the Hellenic, Nordic, and Finno-Ugric peoples. I want to add Celtic into this list, but whereas I am not aware of any surviving creation account from the Celts, I have excluded them from this chapter, though they will figure in predominantly later. I have sourced my retellings variously, using as close to primary source documents as possible. I've used the the Theogony from Greece, the Eddas from the Norse, and the Kalevala from the Finnish. The course of this essay, and the podcast that accompanies it, shall put forward the general purpose of my beginning the Lorecast proper. My goal is to illustrate and make a case for the historic unity that informs the European races. While my intent is not to promote an indistinction among the ethnicities, I wish to show that unity and diversity can, should, and must occur. My hypothesis is that these myths flow from a common and perhaps unknowable source. 
furthermore i shall attempt to show that there is a cultural agreement and synthesis which transcends the generic skeptical approach which posits all mythology and has a universal theme because it is logical even if this is true and there is an obvious logic that disparate cultures would spontaneously generate that wavelength of logic is i think a fascinating quandary now a note about that in nihilistic circles it is frequently said that we can discount mythological records as continuous gobbledygook and explain away the massive similarities by saying that logical observation caused them to come up with similar accounts of things it rains therefore there is a deluge um, is the most common one which with which with which i am familiar there are others of course but i find them as generally unappealing and uninspirational as nihilism in general so any number of works have been dedicated to disassembling the lore of our race infinite refinements have been made to show how they are unlike in the foggy dew of yesteryear anthropologists recognized a common source there must have been a common ancestry this had much to do with the Aryan hypotheses of Europeans prior to the self-destructive European civil wars between 1914 and 45, which ultimately proved that the only winners in this conflict would ultimately lose everything anyway. My goal will be to show the common threads I see running through, as inspired by many of these older hypothetical movements. Bear in mind, I'm one man, my research is limited, basic resources and mythological records have been my guide, but... People have hedged their bets on less and hurt more than I'm ever going to. I digress. Cosmogenous is a sizable topic. Atlas would have had trouble shouldering the burden, so I freely expect and thus admit that this may be confusing at times. Please bear with me. Now, assuming you have read or heard my retellings, there are common elements. Before what becomes, there was not, and there was nothing. This seems fairly rudimentary. There is the idea that over time elements came into place. I glean no impression of a finger-snapping good time or a seven-day span like the literalist account of Genesis. This is to say nothing of the more reasoned interpretations utilizing metaphor and simile in gematria in their mathematical calculations, such as some of the Catholic speculations which hold that the quote-unquote six-day creation epoch before the Sabbath in fact, symbolized much longer time spans, such as a day being 10,000 years at Ketera on Sovaita. There is a cascading evolution, an expected hierarchy of development that is shared along many lines. For my purposes, I shall be occasionally comparing and contrasting to the biblical account of Genesis, as whether you believe it belongs in the European canon or not, it is considerably more accessible to most readers and therefore serves as an acceptable measuring stick. So again, I digress. There is an anticipated order. In the beginning is nothing, unrefinement, sometimes a chasm. Chaos for the Greeks, Gagap for the Norse. It is perceived in both cases that this primal emptiness was not bereft of air. Thus, there seems to be the idea that nothingness, you can imagine my air quotes, is simply unrealized potential. There was, after all, a sense of destiny among our peoples, all of them. In each case, the cosmic storms sound off and produce matter. This is what allows us to tie in with the Finnish account, which, I argue, only seems foreign to the others superficially. If you ignore the apparent language barrier, 
though one may find very vague connections even lingually then the story flows as survived the jive guy says in a very indo-european way i shall show how they are connected and explore in terms of upg for what else is there to us now how they might be considered aspects of a singular tale we might someday de rediscover at any rate i i i'll go on record and say that i believe that there is a common source and if there are separate versions in the in the beginning there was much more to bind us as a singular monad than there is to separate us as we are now as diversities anyway 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 i shall attempt to show how they are connected and explore in terms of i already said that the great darkness gives forth wind which leads to water how the water comes about is in dispute as to for the greeks it was a result of the storms as with the finns and as for the norse it was due to cosmic fire and ice meeting next there comes the first life form in each case a giant for lack of better terms an extreme lack of better terms in fact giant is a latter-day term for most of us and i think by the end of it it will become clear why the greek and norse characterized their giant as male and female respectively oh, male and evil i'm sorry we never learn why it is that emir is evil he simply is now it could be that emir once resembled oranos but for whatever reason he was censored i suspect another answer to be the cause of the discrepancy we shall go over it later in reality while it is described as masculine emir of the norse is however quite asexual oranos you will recall according to the greeks is hypersexual and rapes gaia most obviously implied as a show of domination in this the greek and finnish sources share some potential agreement the giant in the kalivala is initially incorporeal the virgin of the air is a spirit she descends from the air and produces water or the storms produce water rather as she comes lower she is impregnated by a great storm compared to the greek gaia the mother of the earth resides among oceanus and is impregnated by oranos in neither case is the first pregnancy planned by the woman or even necessarily desired and in both cases the result is great and unmitigated pain both gaia and the sky virgin are forbidden from giving birth in the case of gaia oranos forbids gaia's womb from opening in the case of the virgin she prayed to uko god of the universe for relief but he did not answer for ages each was pregnant finally giving birth the obvious discrepancy is that gaia makes monsters first whereas according to the finnish creation was considerably more benign vainamoinen is the firstborn according to finstock if you have read my auxiliary work on venusian culture you should know by now my hypothesis on the creation of the modern european by blending of neolithic and paleolithic man or old european with new european or perhaps aryan i shall here posit that the finnish account be incredibly older and less in again and again air quotes refined than the greek might represent a more paleolithic approach you shall recall my belief that the presumably paleolithic europeans were matriarchal while the presumably neolithic europeans perhaps the conquering aryans were patriarchal the hypothesis is not perfect as the finnish account has heavy celestial influence but if you read the kalivala carefully the action becomes grounded after the first act a moment to reflect there are several potentialities to consider 
One is the existence of the Neanderthal and Homo sapiens in tandem. There have been speculations before, before my work, before a lot of people's work, before some of us have been alive, but uh, not before Varg and his rag-on-a-stick nationalism, which imply that the Neanderthal is an older form of European, and that the Homo sapiens only achieved dominance due to apparently more opposable thumbs. Another theory has been that the old Europeans, now presumed a separate Homo sapiens tribe, was simply overrun by the horse lords, being the Homo sapiens who had tamed horses and were thereby more mobile. I have taken all of these into account in consideration to forming my own hypotheses, as we shall attempt to outline. Now, before we move forward, the Finnish and the Greek account ring similarly to the biblical Genesis, as there is the common motif of a spirit hovering over the waters prior to the introduction of land. Remember this, Dan. There are some tellings of Norse mythology to suggest that a spirit was present before Emir, but these are apocryphal. However, it was generally agreed upon by Germanic peoples that there was a primal giant. Sometimes he was Oyelmir, other times he was Twisto or Manus. He was not, interestingly, always evil, which brings into the question of the Germanic phenotypes how much concentration, admixture, conflict, and resolution explains the intercultural discrepancies. Manus is related to the rune Manats and helps give us our word man. Interestingly, in many Gnostic traditions, there is the idea of a demiurge being composed of bifurcated sexual identities, who is split apart to create, in air quotes, man, which echoes the primal giant concepts of both Manus and Twisto. Yeah, a little bit of this is in the names. Manus, as I mentioned, comes to us in our term man, but Twisto, you can come away with several words, twist, rip, or twin. One Gnostic alternative to the Bible posits that Adam was a lesser god forged by the demiurge Yahweh. In this account, Adam was bisexual, as in hermaphroditic, and was split into two so reproduction could occur. This process stripped it of its divinity, apparently, and has somehow escaped becoming the poster child for all sex reassignment surgeries as proof that the ancients were, in air quotes, born in wrong bodies, whatever. My point here is that the gender of the primal giant is a topic of Zen. Greeks held that it was masculine. Norse held that it was neuter. Finns held that it was feminine. This might intimate an intermediary phase. If the old Europeans were matriarchal, it makes sense that they would have preferred a creatrix. The Greeks were clearly patriarchal, thus their creator was a masculine force of will. The Norse had struck up a unique sociocultural gender balance which has yet to be replicated because this is clown world and nobody has nuance. Now, before I move on, there is a point that I wanted to make which I had forgotten to write down. I need to remember what it is. It might come to me later, I'm going to keep going. That being said, the Finnish account may represent the beliefs of the people that blended into or were blended by the new Europeans. Again, perhaps these were the Aryans. It follows because that the primal giant here is female and her creation occurs with less violence, we can now tie into the next element, the creation of lights. It is generally agreed that light comes late and that life does not necessarily require it. To the Norse, light came after the sacrifice of the primal giant. To the Greeks, light produced the primal giant. 
In this instance, the Nordic and Finnish account order more similarly, but have Greece as the intermediary. Both the Finns and the Greeks believe that light emerged from a kind of cosmic egg. To the Greeks, the egg appeared. To the Finns, it was laid on the virgin's knee. Interestingly, surrogate birth in ancient times would have had a woman receiving another's baby on her knee. There may be symbolism here. Ask the Greeks. And with the light came Eros, or love. When the Finnish sky version received the egg, she panicked and it cracked. The cracking of the cosmic egg produced the lights in heaven, the dome of the sky and the floor of the earth. This, in a sense, is more akin to the Norse, wherein Odin cracked Emir's head like an egg and used his body to make the land in heavens. In either case, there is the whisper of violence. In the Norse, that violence is obvious. In the Finnish, it is implied. Next, in both Finnish and Norse, the land is arranged. The Finnish account is relatively peaceful, with the sky version ar arranging the extant material. Odin does the same thing, but, as we've determined, with the corpse of a giant. In either case, the creator arranges extant matter to create a habitable world. I believe we may infer that in Greece, where monsters rampaged the land and the gods did the rest, that a similar motif exists in the twain, where the three are trying to meet. Consider. Later on, we'll discuss how the monsters and the giants of newer Aryan mythologies represent the gods and the heroes of older mythologies that were replaced. If this forms to be true, then the old Greek account might contain original seeds of a more peaceful creation account, like the Finnish. And the Norse, which is in many ways more benign than the Greek, might represent that intermediary phase as mentioned. Now, going on. Oh, actually, here's one thing I've just remembered. When I was still in theology class and studying the Old Testament, we were often forced to compare the biblical account to what are presumably earlier Mesopotamian accounts, uh, those being the Enuma Elish, which have um, Gilgamesh and Tiamat and all these different things. In the quote-unquote Genesis of the Babylonians, uh, of the Mesopotamians, I'm sorry, there is the dragon Tiamat who reigned over the universe. And I forget the name of the primal god, but the primal god eventually fills her full of air and rips her in half, covers the universe in her blood, and creates the world. And this leads into an account which is very similar to the biblical Genesis, which, of course, scholars say that Genesis is derived from the Mesopotamia account. This may be, this may be true, maybe not, but there is a problem in determining value from oral records versus written records. Primacy is given to the Mesopotamians because they had written records. Obviously, the Hebrews would have uh, stolen the written records, yada, yada, blah, blah. So anyway, moving on. In the Finnish account, the presumptive first man is Vainamoinen. He falls from the womb of the air maiden, who by now seems to take up the space of the archetypical giant. However, unlike other European accounts, she is not awing, staggering, or loathsome, suggesting the original noble nature of the giant, or giantess. In this way, she is similar to Emir, who asexually, though still immaculately, conceives of the father of the gods, or the father of the father of the gods. There is no implied struggle with Emir's creation of Buri, and Buri was the first to engage in sexual congress in the Norse record. Presumptively, as it is mentioned, he coupled with Bolvorn's daughter.
only the Greek model appears to diverge in the notation that Gaia is raped by Oronos, Gaia representing Earth and Oronos representing Heaven. One might reconcile this meditation by choosing to see Gaia and Oronos as personifications. It is likely that the original Greeks would have seen them in the same way as, as I've discussed in some other articles on the Spurg box, that earlier European peoples were more animistic and the concept of God was much looser and less personal. Anyway, the Virgin of the Air was by wind impregnated but only by descending to the sea where Earth or Gaia would be. I'm going to make another digression back to the Mesopotamian. The primal god destroys Tiamat by filling her with air and then, I believe, piercing her kidney with an arrow and ripping her in half. Um, it's worth noting that the violence of wind occurs in both the Finnish account and the Mesopotamian account. And if it is true that the both of them are very archaic, they might also be related to an earlier time in which these people had not split out and become different in the Tower of Babel scenario, which warrants considerable discussion and may occur by the end of this recording. Anyway, the Finnish account is rather quiet regarding the creation of the races of man. The Greek and Norse are in agreement that man was a byproduct of divine intervention. Now, of course, in both the Greek and the Norse, there is a singular race of man created. There is no, there is no mention of any multiculturalism at this point, which I would think would be obvious in that people of like substance encountered each other and therefore did not see the need to distinguish themselves in any multicultural sense. But... As a digression before I continue, it's worth noting that in the Greek accounts, different races of man are described, Hyperboreans, uh, the Ethiopians, and uh, the Sumerians. Um, now, the early Greeks were considerably more widely traveled than the early Norse, who tended to, in their formative years, stay put in their regions and only encounter similar tribes. So, I digress. At any rate, the Greek and Norse are in agreement that man was a byproduct of divine intervention. The Greeks saw a clearly evolutionary and degenerative cycle. The Greeks alternatively believed that Prometheus lifted man up from a species of ape, or else that Zeus created races of man in descending order according to the value of known metals, resulting in the basis of them all being iron. A brief notation about this. In many ways, this Greek account of the of the metallurgy would inspire later forms of alchemy. Um, it is unlikely that this alchemical tradition was consciously e, uh, informed by the Greeks, but is a more sublimated form of paganism, which I argue the universal archetypes of paganism have moved society forward long after they were absorbed or nullified by Christendom or other less pleasant forces. Anyway, later in the Kalivala, there is a retelling of the creation of iron and how it was cursed by Ilmarinen for oath-breaking. If we allow for metaphor, iron personified may refer to the adoption of iron weaponry among known populations to the ancient Finns or Solmi. In the Greek, the Iron Age man was treacherous and impious. 
in my retelling of the creation account, I remind the listener or reader that Iron Man was treacherous because he used his tools not to grow closer to the gods, but to try to usurp their power by making their own creations, not for the betterment of the world, but for their own glory. That is why he was treacherous and impious, according to the Greeks. Now, I believe these two are distantly related. After all, when we look into history, men at different periods were, of course, given to different metals. It follows that if you stretch backward in time, you would invariably travel closer to the gods who initiated the creation cycle. Uh, the gods themselves are likened to gold and so on down the line until we come to man. So, in a sense, it is a reverse chronology as we edge closer to the beginning, we assume that things are better as they grow closer back in time to the gods, implying that time exists, etc. So, it follows further that if you stretch backward in time, you would inevitably travel closer to the gods who initiated the creation cycle. This, I believe, explains the order beginning with gold, closest to god, and ending in iron, farthest from god. The Norse epic generally views the creation of man favorably, with man being carved from trees, which is obviously not metal. This in itself may relate back to the Finnish, in that the Finnish system of the primal forest has primal significance. I will revisit the topic of trees later, as the cultural predominance beggars investigation. The latter-day Aryan peoples seem to have annexed primitive European peoples, uh, yeah, but the Aryans themselves appear quite cynical. Norse mythology is perhaps best known and lamented for its story Ragnarok. The Germans have a saying, Weiert und Angespin, worshipped and spat upon. Consider, according to the modern wisdom, in air quotes, Norse mythology is macabre and fatalistic. After all, even the gods die at the end. Ligasp. In the Greek mythology, scholars tout, there is no such Armageddon slash apocalypse. But is that true? No. No. Zeus unmakes the world he creates in no less than three instances during Greek mythology, and in every case the stories are held in close parallelism with the Old Testament. There is a global flood. That is the most obvious one. Now, of course, with the flood comes the Ark, but there were others. Norse mythology also has an account of a deluge. In Gnungagap, Emir's blood drowns out the cosmos. That in itself reminds me of the Sumerian blood of Kingu, in which a slain primordial beast gives life from a drowning flood. Also, in the Norse account, I believe it was Burgelmir who escapes with his wife, whom I think was Bestla. They escape on an ark that they create, and they eventually found the nation-state of Jotunheim elsewhere. I digress. In one account, the fate of the last race of man is given as saying that increased degeneration among humans will lead to the end of them, a very Ragnarok-like situation. After all, in Ragnarok, the catalyst is, among other things, sexual depravity, impiety, and so forth. Now, in the Kalevala, there is a Ragnarok of a kind. His name is the Great Birth, and he is an obvious pagan allegory for Jesus. Vainamoina curses the Finnish people for abandoning their folkish ways upon crowning the Great Birth king. He sails away in a copper boat and promises to one day return. Now, the Kalevala, in many ways, is less violent than the Eddas and the Greek tales. However, what Vainamoinen says in his own shamanistic way is very much like what Ragnarok says, that this is the end of an era. 
After all, in the Ragnarok, it is said that a new god will rise and rule over all, despite the fact that the children of the old gods persist, with some elder gods even rising again from Helheim. So, a quick return to the Greek before we move on. That Zeus indicates there shall be an end of the era indicates that the Greeks once had a creation-destruction cycle similar to the Vedic Aryans or the Norse. Why did this creation cycle dissipate in Greek religion, you might ask? Well, I tend to think personally that the adoption of philosophy as an alternative for religion had a lot to do with it. The Greeks, with their powers of philosophy, would eventually reach a zenith where they felt that they could escape from the natural order of things. In some ways, this Greek spirit of escape from natural order represents a libertine spirit which has been with the European ever since, manifesting itself in various forms of democracy or republicanism or the French, and so on. Okay, so before I continue, I want to make another interesting note on metals. Copper is an alloy, obviously favored by the Finfolk. In one Greek account, it is mentioned as a race of heroic souls who would dwell forever in the Isles of the Blessed. Interestingly, and this is my option to work the Celtic races in, they were believed to inhabit such place. The Irish believed that there were Isles of the Blessed, where uh, I believe it's Avalon, where aging didn't occur. Arthur goes there, and it is said that he slumbers and is not aware of the passing of time. And at the end of the Arthurian cycles, he goes back to Avalon, and like uh, Vanamoinen of the Finns, he's going to come back one day when the circumstances are right. And this is a large staple of British romantic mythology. So, there it is. Copper. Isles of the Blessed. Celts believed in such an island. In the Norse, however, the alloy question is admittedly less superficially important. Now, as in the Greek, there is a golden age, which is omitted by the Finns, from what I can see at the moment. This golden era is recognized as the peace of the gods. It is broken by a war of heaven. Interestingly, it follows the Aesir's side of conflict, Asgard is mentioned of being golden, but many furnishings within are red gold. Now, as a quick digression before I return to red gold, the Vanir themselves are often described in terms of gold. The goddesses are gold, the, the Vanir are fond of gold themselves. Uh, in fact, it is what brings Heidi Golfeg to Asgard in the first place, her thirst for gold. Her name means thirst for gold. Anyway, red gold. The Nordic races were fond of using kennings, which is poetic allegory and they often avoided direct description. Red gold may incite imagery of copper, and may tie the three together. After all, Asgard was where Valhalla and Folkvang were, and these were where the most red gold was. And it was here that the honored dead went. Now, as promised, I want to talk about the trees. Trees play variously divergent roles, and appear to have very different weights and scales. The Finns, and Greek, uh, the Finns and the Greeks both regarded the tree as very highly important, as did many Germans outside of Scando-Nordic extraction. They share this. The oak was sacred to Zeus. The oak was sacred to Ukko. The Greek myths do not appear to have an equivalent of the Nordic, Yggdrasil, while Finland had the monster oak, which rose to humongous size and, in being sacrificed, blessed mankind. 
let's make a corollary here, as I'm afraid that my original script wasn't descriptive enough. So, the monster oak grows to such a massive size that it blocks out the sun and threatens to choke out all life. Now, Yggdrasil of the Norse, which is an, a an ash tree, rises so high that the nine worlds hang from its boughs, like Christmas tree ornaments, you might say. Obviously, the massive cosmic universal size of each tree is a allegory of a kind of world tree scenario. But in the Finnish sense, where shamanism never really died out, the importance of the tree represents a cosmic order and balance. The tree gets too big eventually. It can't be its own planet, whereas in Yggdrasil, it transcends and becomes a cosmic tree. Anyway, here we are. It may remain that there is a shamanic interplay between the Finnish super oak and the Nordic Yggdrasil, which was held to be an ash tree. Other Germanic peoples had other sacred trees of other genii. Uh, I might mention, as I was discussing this with a friend the other day, the Irmensul of the Anglo-Saxons, which the dirty Franks uh, cut down to spite them. There is, of course, in late Catholic mythology, the Thunder Oak of Geismar. Geismar was a town in Germany which was stalwartly pagan. Um, Bonaventure? I think, was the saint. I think it was Bonaventure. Anyway, it's been quite a few years since I've read the Catholic sides of these myths. But the saint went to this German town of Geismar to preach the good word. He was not received well. And the pagans of the town preferred to worship their Thunder Oak of Geismar. Now, the Thunder Oak of Geismar was so-called because long ago it had been struck by lightning, and the pagan folk there believed that this was a sign from the god Thor. Now, a little, a little further on, we're going to see a similarity to the Roman, which I think is probably connected, and I think you will see how it is connected as well. Anyway, Bonaventure cut the... Was it Bonaventure? Anyway, the saint cut the tree down. The pagans converted immediately, being the simpletons, of course, that they were. The day was saved, thanks to the Powerpuff Girls. In Rome, the oak was also sacred. However, well, sacred because it was sacred to Jupiter. However, oaks struck by lightning, like Geismar, were regarded as sacred, and they could not be defiled. Shrines were immediately placed to the uh, Thunder Oaks of Rome, and they themselves served as way shrines. They became shrines by default. Now, I believe there is a ritual significance to this lost ideal of a world or sacred tree, but by the time the Romans began taking written records of their Thunder Oaks, they had moved away from animism and towards polytheism. And so the Thunder Oak was a... It was an anachronism to the ancient Romans. And there you go. Furthermore, when Vianna Moinen clears away the forest, he spares the birch tree. This brings us back to the Germanic peoples, who had a rune called Bracana, which becomes our word birch. There was a goddess of the same name, we believe. Furthermore, this goddess survived for centuries by evolving with the people, and was eventually known and condemned by the medieval Christians as Pershta, the belly slitter. She was on the eastern fringes of Germany, somewhere between Germany and the Slavic peoples there. Pretty grim stuff. 
And even her belly slitting is probably a perverted, inverted, let's deconvert people way of referring to earlier fertility practices, which, because of misrepresentation, are very hard to know. Yeah, so thousands of years of evolution for mere polemic, pitiful and a disgrace. But the birch tree was significant to the Germanic peoples because it represented fertility. That never changed. There are Sagaic uh, accounts in which women drew Bacana runes on their nails during childbirth to increase their likelihood of coming to full term. You might recall that in the ancient times, fertility rituals accounted for at least half of the body of magical lore that we understand now. Vaina Moinen, no doubt, had invoked his mother. And while not named a goddess, she would have certainly been called one were she in any other pantheon. He did this when he had to deal with the monster oak. It may be that the birch stood for her honor. After all, Vaina Moinen could have spared any tree. He chose birch, which everywhere else is a symbol of feminine fertility. While I am not as acquainted with Celtic tree magic as I would like to be, I will draw parallels between Celtic herbcraft and Finnish shamanism. Both value trees highly and catalog them extensively over the course of their mythic cycles. Uh, the Irish and the Welsh especially favor trees and their symbolism and their, and their magical properties, their spiritual properties, their meditative properties. Uh, the reason that the yew tree was often planted in guard, as guardian trees in Germanic lands was due to the hallucinogenic properties of the yew tree. It was said that if you slept under the yew tree for enough time, you might have uh, gained transcendental visions, as in the vision quest. There has been some speculation that the, the, uh, the Buddha, and for purposes of my own propaganda, I'm going to speak of the red-haired barbarian Buddha, that is remembered in parts of China and other you know, Asian parts where they found the white mummies and so forth. It's possible that Buddha sat for so long under a yew tree and eventually attained enlightenment in the same way that Odin hung under a tree or that any of the other enlightenment tree ideals in European mythology so happened. Moving on. So, trees, Celts, Finns, very important. Trees, important elsewhere, but the Celts and the Finns seem to retain the strongest connection to them. Now, this in conjunction with the fact that in the Norse, man was created from carving trees suggests a belief in our relationship to the forests from which man almost certainly evolved. One might note also that trees hold a special, special significance later to the Italic peoples as well, in as late as Ovid's time where the story of Balsus and Philemon is told. Uh, it is the story of two pious lovers who are spared death by being transformed into a conjoined Ogan Linden. If you are feeling amorous, you may go to the Spurb Box and learn more of the story, where I have, if I may say so myself, written a fine retelling of the Balsus and Philemon tale. Anyway, while I think of trees, the oak tree that created a massive darkness in early Finnish creation, one might think of this as simply referring to the fact that Finland experiences a long, dark spell, and that this is the explanation, mythopoeically speaking. Perhaps, however, in the Greek creation, you may recall, Zeus arranges for an eclipse of the sun and plunges the cosmos into darkness while he strives against titans seeking for the herbs of immortality. There may yet be a similarity or a forgotten reference between the two. 
While in the finished element, this quest is removed, both share motifs. The tree in Finns in the Finnish tales has to be destroyed, and one would presume that when Zeus finds the herbs first, he would destroy them. The herbs were going to grant the giants immortality, as you might recall. And in either case, the result is the death of the sunlight on the earth below. There are other points to be made here. The Finnish creation account uses numerology freely, as does Norse mythology. It is likely that the Greek myth does also, but I know less than I would like to about Greek numerology. For instance, in the Kalevala, Vainamoinen encounters the four maidens and five wives, who act as catalysts to the destruction of the monster oak. Nine is the sacred number of Norse mythology. There are nine worlds. Odin freely did deeds in multiples of nine. For instance, he achieved the runes for hanging for nine days and nine nights, which equals 18, which, if you add one in eight, still equals nine. It all goes back to nine. Vainamoinen finds seven barley seeds. Seven is the number of perfection in the Old Testament, and as we've discussed earlier and off the cuff, these might also be related in some way in the long annals of Indo-European history. Now, Vainamoinen plants these seven barley seeds and creates the first garden, which reminds me, gardens. In Greek mythology, there is described a paradisical land for the golden race of man where plants grow of their own accord. This smells like Eden, where a similar description is given of man tilling and sweating only after the serpent, and as we have and will discuss in my Venus reports, the serpent cultures are representative of old Europeans. The serpent tempted Adam and Eve into eating the fruit of forbidden knowledge. This connects us to the Greek Zeus, who, too, punished Prometheus from the race of giants, again symbolized by snakes, for affording man his fire, the fire of learning. The punishment for this was Pandora, who taught evil and also hope. It is specious, but in Norse mythology, the gods punished one called Mundulfari for daring to be named after the moon. They were thrown out of Midgard and into the heavens to help ferry the moon. This is a form of outlawry, which, as you'll recall, was the punishment of Adam and Eve. They were expelled from Eden, where there was placed a cherub wielding a flaming sword. In Nordic legend, Surt wields a flaming sword, and he comes from the east. In each case, the idea is the same. The crime is the same. Defiance of man to the natural order by imitating the gods in such a way that was not sanctioned. This way being, in every respect, a heart swollen with pride. In this, there is a definite lack of agreement, which I believe shows the timestamp difference between contemporary mythopoeic evolution of Greeks and Nords to the Finns, who achieved isolation sooner in the historic record and kept it longer. Remember, my hypothesis is that the Finnish religion here more closely resembles what old Europeans might have believed. Not perfectly, but closely. The Finnish religion has loosely defined gods with an emphasis on gigantic figures and strong, strong, strong emphasis on nature and your own connection to it. Gods were auxiliary, almost an afterthought. Contrast this to the religions of other Indo-Europeans who place gods uberalis, we might be bold and draw a line of agreement from Finland to Rome. Early Rome, being bastions of blessed autism, kept records going far and away to before their origins. The further back you go, the more nuministic the Roman religion was. Early Rome had ill-defined spirits in place of gods, and presumably developed gods by coming into contact with Italic races who had been contacted by Greeks, such as the, Etrus the Etruscans, 
who had a sky god pantheon. Here again is a connection, for the Etruscans are often cited as being influential to the development of the runic alphabet by proxy. <clears throat> now this theory bears weight with me. If for no other reason, then we know the Etruscans called their gods Aiseros, which is suspiciously similar to the Nordic Aesir, both of which are translated as god. This is interesting because Zeus, Jupiter's name, is derived from an Indo-European word, Tiavats, which here is cognate to an older Indo-European word, which becomes Daios, which apparently is significant to the Vedic practitioners. Now, speaking of runes, the Finns had a concept of runes. They had a runamoinen, which was a singer of songs. Rune for them meant song. Rune for the Nordic peoples meant secret. It evolved from Raunos, which uh, is supposed to have meant whisper. And if I remember correctly, even modern German reflects a sense of this with, I believe, the word is Raunen to whisper. Could be wrong. Don't quote me on that particular German trivia. Now, the sky giantess sang the continents into arrangement. The cosmos was literally sung into being. Vainamoinen wandered around and sang songs. This is how the Kalivala was composed. It was the record of Vainamoinen's songs to the mortals that he visited in his travels. The Nordic races believed that the runes emerged from Odin's self-sacrifice. He crucified himself to the tree. Self-sacrifice is a real or imagined underworld, or it involves a real or imagined underworld. This is a throwback to shamanism. Greeks and Norse, interestingly, regarded magic with suspicion, indicating their cultural distance from shamanism, as the old Europeans had it, or at least their evolution in air quotes forward. Take your pick. What I wish to impress is that Odin learned occult magic, or runes, which again means secrets, by engaging in a shamanic rite by sacrificing himself, living Odin, to himself, the god of death. He did this by transfixing his living corpse, Yggdrasil, the tree of life, and was born again, like Jesus of Latter-day fame. We know from Norse mythology that runes were intimately connected to birds. In one story, a god disguised teaches a king the runes. In another story, Heimdall takes on disguise, called Rig, which, you might be interested to know, is also the Irish word for king, and creates the three classes of men. He reserves runes for the lords. Odin receives news from his ravens. In the Finnish tale, the birds are automatically capable of speaking with the sage, Vainamoinen, who by default speaks in a rune song. Furthermore, in Rome, there was a practice of measuring the will of the gods, Algori, by tracing the guts or the flights of birds, all related. The Irish had a soft spot for birds, and it is fascinating that the Morrigan, a trinity like the Nordic Norns, Greek Morai, and the Roman Parsi, chose to appear as a raven and to cry fate to the heroes before battle. In the Celtic, the Morrigan is much like a feminine counterpart of Odin. Uh, take a second here to have a slug of coffee before I go on, because my voice is getting a little raw. Now... Before I sign off, I would like to, in relative brief, discuss the, the genesis of Ovidius Naso's metamorphosis. 
Ovidius Nezo is the proper name for the poet that we call Ovid, Ovid being an anglicization of Ovidius. There are several elements that grab me right out straight. The first is the idea of elements lowering through the cosmos, increasing in weight. That wasn't an uncommon scientific idea prevalent to Greece and Rome. However, there was the belief that as invisible, supernatural or spiritual world lowered, it would increase in atomic mass or weight, thus becoming flesh. There was the idea that spirit, as it lowered through experience, became heavier and took on took on flesh. It, it does, I guess, have a certain logic if you consider that spirits were believed to be weightless and invisible, whereas flesh is heavy and cumbersome. It, it is, after all, why the Gnostics hated flesh and sought to escape from the life-death cycle, which in turn is very similar to the Buddhist concept of achieving samsara by escaping from nirvana. Or, wait, I'm sorry. Got it backwards. I'm really not up on my yellow menace. They would achieve nirvana by escaping from samsara and become light and be free of ego, so forth. Anyway, that sense was described in the pseudo-Gnostic Gospel of John, in which Jesus Logos lowers himself to the station of a man, a god taking on flesh. It's also interesting to note that in Old Testament terminology, the word for glory in Old Hebrew is the same as the old word for weight, which uh, is fun because the Old Testament was famously fleshy, earthy, and human in many ways. I mean, yes, there was the divine intervention aspect, but the stress was always on the mortal, at the dying, the decaying, whereas the New Testament was all about getting away from that heaviness, getting away from that old glory and towards a new. So, digression over. Similarly, there is this sense in the Finnish story, where the spirit of the air knows only boredom as an approximation of suffering. Really, she has a pretty good then. As a spirit, she has no pain. She has no weight. It is only said that she knew pain after pregnancy, after putting on the flesh. There was once the sense that, for the Greek and Norse myths, the primal giants were already there, but taking on shape, I wonder. In the Norse, you have the yawning chasm, Gnungagap. Yawn describes a method of breathing out, or breathing in. So Gnungagap, in a sense, is breathing in that primal energy. That, that's something I want you to take away from this. Now, Gnungagap is eventually informed by Muspilheim and Nifilheim. And these are the express purposes of forming. It appears to encase Emir in form. Now, uh, as, as a note, in, in Greek mythology, in form literally means that, to take on form, to take on flesh. The invisible becomes informed with the material. Now, so with the Greek, where light blooms from the cosmic egg and leads to storms, water, and then Gaia slash Oronos. Gaia slash Oronos give for give birth to the monsters, the monsters to the titans, uh, or I'm sorry, the monsters to the cyclops, the cyclops to the titans, the titans to the gods, gods to man, and so forth. Very similar to Norse. Now, another fascinating element is the dialectical nature of Ovid's Genesis. He speaks of cold striving with hot in one body. This is immediately reminiscent of the Nordic approach, a fire and ice creating mild conditions worthy of life. 
Certainly, Ovid would have had access to the Greek legend, so it would have made no surprise that he would have likened the darkness versus the light as inevitable. However, it is unlikely that he would have been familiar with the Nordic system. We know that the Greeks encountered the Norse at some point. They were probably the Hyperboreans or some other people that were loosely mentioned. We absolutely know that the Greeks were in contact with the Celts. Thus, I think it is remarkable that men and peoples so far removed would have come to such similar conclusions. Now, bear in mind that just because the Greeks might have encountered Nordic peoples, Tulians is where we get the, the name from, it, I find unlikely that they would have traded religion. So it brings me back to my opening musings. Was there a thread of logic that we moderners are divorced from? Does it make sense that oppositional forces create an environment ripe for life? We think so now because burgeoning science has shown that this, in many ways, on some level, is presently true. That truth may change as science self-corrects itself. I don't know. Some people believe in the mythological presentation of the Big Bang, which itself is not drastically removed from the light of arrows bursting forth from the cosmic egg, or the thought of the sparks from Muspelheim creating a primal mist. Everything is a myth to someone. Heat and cold interact to make mild. Light and dark strive to make mind. Always in these systems, intricate balances are preached. It's as if they had a sense that in order for chemical evolution to occur, that the environment for the creation of life had to be just so. Our ancestors were closer to nature, so maybe that makes sense that they were more sensitive. Or, and this is what I tend to believe, maybe there is more to myth than we credit to tell us. Consider the force of impression required to spread isolated motif across continents and generations. Please, seriously, consider the massive amount of energy that it took to continue these myths in their evolutions and their retellings and their forms over the tens of thousands of years that they held sway over society. Take the deluge, a prevalent theme. Our ancestors were clearly smitten with water. Why not? But the assumption is that water played a part in creation, that life springs from it. Yeah, well, that makes sense, sure. But how much sense does it make? That's an important question. Furthermore, early on, there was a flood. That was an almost universal assumption. Now, do we really believe that people infinitely copied the same story over and over and over? If that's true, it's still amazing, because that same story had enough power to carry it for that long, and we would be fools to ignore it now. Furthermore, another interesting notation is the creation of man. In any case, among Aryans, man is the product of a long descent. Is that a logical assumption? Is it? If you're an ancient person with no obvious scientific proclivities as we would understand them, I don't see as to how that makes logical sense. I will grant that the logical assessment of men in a religion that believes in a monotheistic deity would put us as a pinnacle of life under their singular god, that makes sense. If God created us in his image, we would be pretty goddamn important, if you will. But even so, if we were created in the image of gods, I would think that we would still be similarly important. Yet we're at the bottom of the barrel. The Aryan faiths deny us this, brutally. Man is an afterthought, the last in the line of a rise and fall of complexity. He is not the apple of any god's eye. Comparing Greek and Norse, you see the shades of the future Bible god, Zeus calls 
Zeus is very callous to his creation, though not unjust in his assessments, much like Yahweh. And before I even go forward in this sentence, I need to make my digression that I forgot before. A note on Yahweh and Jupiter. The personal name of Jupiter to the Romans was Yove. Yove is what the Romans called Jupiter before Jupiter was adopted from Zeus. Now, Yove is very similar etymologically to Yahweh, and there has been posited a connection between the two. Now, of course, this evidence is specious, and people like to dump on it because people like William Fink of Christogenia are big proponents that uh, Yahweh Yahweh are the same god. I, however, think it makes a certain amount of sense, especially in light of what we're going for. I just happen to be on the opposite side of the coin in that my coin flips to the side of the pagan as opposed to the Christian tales. For me, whereas William Fink believes the coin flips to Christ and the pagan lands on tales. But the evidence is out there. So, moving, moving back from my digressions. Zeus seems callous to his creation. Meanwhile, Odin makes humans in a divine image and later freely lets them ascend, which is, in a sense, more like Jesus than Yahweh. This might suggest that early man perceived other hominids and recorded them in their mythological record. After all, if you're an early human, let's say that Homo sapiens coexisted with Neanderthals. Neanderthals and Homo sapiens are reasonably similar separated only by the length of our thumbs and yada yada. Now, if, if, if earlier humans, such as Cro-Magnon or insert Homo genensis, whatever here, might have existed at the same time, the further back in the human record you go, the more monstrous that human is going to seem. So maybe Neanderthals had access to Cro-Magnon and thought that they were just another kind of ape. <laughs> You'd forgive them for thinking that. They look rather ape-like if one is to believe the fossil record, of course. I am told by close friends that this is quite the debate if you travel far enough into the tinfoil hat circles. I believe this to be the case anyway, that early humans had interconnection. And I inform my beliefs with this hypothesis that the sky god, earth goddess divide was observed in European religions. After all, if you go and read my work on the Venuses, the giants or the fertility gods are very earthy and very matriarchal. The goddesses of those tribes are always more important than the gods. Whereas the sky gods, such as the Olympians and the Aesir, they're very patriarchal. The gods rule, and they humor the goddesses, of course, but it's very obviously a man's world. So, there's that. The old Europeans might well have been an earlier form of human, Neanderthal perhaps, conquered by Homo sapien Aryans. Who's to say that the Neanderthal and sapiens, whom we understood were quite compatible, again, thumbs, but compatible enough to blend, wouldn't have looked on any vestigial earlier forms as monstrosities? It is not an impossible fancy, given the inconsistency of the fossil record, the unreliable nature of carbon dating, and the confirmation bias of evolutionary scientists to support Darwinian mythology. There is, I think, much to consider. Also, take my mythological road and life is much more interesting, because we don't have to deny evolution, but we do look at it with more nuance 
than the mere bones, fossils, and peer review culture of modern evolutionism. So there, there's my little gauntlet throwing down. Hopefully, over the course of the last six or so pages, I have at least made a gentle case for the interconnection and syncope between European subraces in history, as described by the various motifs and structure of creation accounts. Every ethnicity holds a piece to the puzzle that we need. If you have asked yourself why any of this matters while reading, please consider the massive numbers of our ancestors who felt that this mattered. Please consider how many thousands of years lived and died with either the old or new European religions. And hell, if you want to make the leap, how the Christians adopted many of the folkways, mores, and superstitions of the earlier pagans and freely incorporated them where they didn't contradict with new Christian theology. Consider that in this manner, paganism survives unbroken to this day as preserved by Christianity and folk custom. Consider that the span of what I'm describing only covers Europe as we know it, and does not delve deeply into the nature of the Aryan before crossing the steppes, if that is where they crossed from, to get to Europe. The customs that we now engage in are often distorted transmissions that have come to us from eons, literal millennia. Religion often informed culture, and this was so of all ancient culture, whose taboos, folkways, mores, stigmas, customs, superstitions, rituals, and so forth all centered around religion. It is popular to dump on belief, but it is ultimately what separates us from the subjects of every segment of Roscoe Jones's boorish behavior clips. In order to truly understand culture, you have to understand this transmission of religion. And really, culture is what we are doing in the identitarian movement. They are inseparable. Cultural illiteracy cannot be tolerated. But, you know, science, bro, and whatever. This has been your humble host, Sax, who is now signing off and praying that when I awake the morning after I speak the last of this essay, that we have graduated from clown world and achieved a civilization worth preserving. Godspeed, good luck, and I'm going to go drink a lot of coffee because my throat is very raw.